This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. President Trump had his first address to a combined Congress last night, and as much as the speech was designed to bring forth agenda items, there were just as many people wondering if the rhetoric attacks would continue as well. But the speech continued to show the divide that exists over policy choices between Republicans and Democrats. To discuss what happened, we're joined in studio by Eric Ortz, professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School, as well as director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. And we're also joined by uh, Jeffrey Green, professor of political theory here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also author of the book, The Shadow of Unfairness, a Plebeian Theory of Liberal Democracy. Eric, great to see you again. Thank you. Good to see you, too. Jeff, great to have you in the studio. Thanks. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, General thoughts on on what uh, Mr. Trump said last night? Well, I think the general reaction I had was that it was a uh, a, uh, surprisingly professional and uh, normal speech, in a way. It was was, uh, clearly a prepared, written speech. Uh, the president indicated an indi- uh, an ability to follow the text read from the <laughs> teleprompter, yeah. and uh, so I think a lot of people felt reinforced by that uh, that this is uh, at least the appearance of uh, normality. I mean, I think there were some there were some aspects that I I felt were particularly memorable. One was. Uh, uh, it, just from a visual point of view, a number of the uh, Democratic women representatives yeah. came in white, and that was quite a, I think, a powerful visual if you were watching it on TV. And of course, white symbolizes the uh, suffragette movement and uh, a general protest about some of the um, some of the uh, policies that the Trump administration has been pursuing, or you know, and that I think uh, you know, some uh, some some continuing protest against uh, President Trump's own behavior in the past, et cetera. And then the other notable moment was the um, uh, a widow of a Navy SEAL who was, yep. who, was, uh, hi- who was highlighted. I personally, a lot of people have argued that that was, uh, that was a great highlight. I personally found it somewhat objectionable on moral grounds. I think it's, uh, this is a controversial case. So there have been calls for an investigation into what happened in the raid in Yemen that uh, took the life of a uh, of an of a Navy SEAL, and his father has come forward and criticized the president. Wants an explanation for why this was uh, this was authorized. Uh, just the day before the president, or was it maybe no, the same day, the president had blamed his generals basically for it, rather than taking responsibility for having ordered the action. He said the generals told me to do it essentially, and I felt I actually think it was quite. Um, unacceptable to take advantage of a widow's grief uh, in that kind of situation. Obviously, it played well on television and um, and uh, was a very emotional moment, but I, I really question that. I don't think I've ever seen that used in that particular way, you know, that kind of emotional um, mm-hmm. tie. And I think it was actually, uh, if you think about it, uh, really very disturbing. So I know different people have uh, impressions about that, but that's my overall general reaction. Jeff? I, I agree that that was a real highlight with Karen Owens, the widow, and that I think was the one place where Trump went off script. And yep. so um, it was something that was in the moment and seemed to last for many minutes, um, and it's probably one of the more powerful, memorable um, aspects of the whole speech. I think in addition to the positivity of Trump's tone and its difference from his more aggressive um, remarks in the past weeks, what also needs to be kept in mind is this is the first address to Congress by a president since 2009, 
where both the president and the majority in Congress are of the same party. And so when one listens to a presidential speech like we did last night, there's a sense that stuff might actually get done, that legislation is going to possibly come out of this. And so you're listening not simply to uh, abstract promises, but to real uh, details about what could be happening in the future. Now, that said, I'm not sure how much we got in terms of uh, concrete details, but part of the, I think, new mood has to be also the fact that the change is likely to happen. There's going to be some legislation that's mm. going to be passed. How the Republicans uh, work it out amongst themselves um, and what the Democrats say back is, you know, unclear, but it seems very likely that we're on the cusp of some big legislation. I think that I would agree about that. And I think you have uh, coming up in the next half hour a discussion of what the economic policies yep. are going to be. Yep. Uh, I think clearly what this president has followed through on the campaign promises so far. So I think you're going to see uh, an economic nationalism uh, approach. Um, there's a very good article in the um, uh, current issue of Foreign Affairs by Paul Paulson, who is, of course, the famous hedge fund uh, trader who was an advisor for Trump and has basically laid out what he thinks the uh, economic plan is going to be. As I agree with Jeff, there were there were there were a lot of vague arguments for here's the direction we're going, but right. it came down to actual uh, details that was pretty soft on the details. So there was a wave about how we're going to have increased defense spending. We're going to have increase. We're going to have a big infrastructure program of uh, you know trillion dollars. We're going to cut taxes and. Uh, there wasn't much math in that, right? I think I think one uh, one colleague said well, there's something like fake math. I would say it's more uh, more like no math because right. if you do all that stuff, there's a huge hit on the bu budget right. deficit, and there are a lot of Republicans in Congress that are not going to go there. Right. So is is this speech though normally used as that type of venue? I mean, as I think we all agree, I mean, this speech is seemingly it is a, a PR speech to you know to bring forth kind of the basic idea but have presidents really gotten into a lot of the core details of what they want to do in this particular speech in the past Jeff well I think you're right that in general this is uh, you know a way to begin a conversation or a PR event as Eric's saying but it's also true that this president seems dispositionally less focused on concrete yep. policy than his predecessors and beyond that has yet to a point a huge amount of, of, of individuals in his administration and in the executive branch. And so he's lacking um, the um, personnel at this point to assist him in the formation of policy, let alone the carrying out of it. So um, I think what his team is well set up to do is what he did last night, which is give up speech um, and, and to, to look good on TV and, and um, indicate some broad uh, direction. But I think even in, in historical standards, there's a thinness to the policy mm -hmm. focus, in my opinion. Eric? Yeah, I think that that's true. Uh, I, I guess I'd highlight one other. I mean, I think uh, you're going to have coming forward what the deals are going to be made with respect to the economy. I think you, there, it's laid out what the plan is, I think. And there, right. was, uh, there were a lot of gestures also to what they're looking at. So there were, they, were, they were talking about, and we're going to have the 250th year anniversary of the founding of the republic in nine years. So that's kind of gives you a sense of where they're looking. And I think that idea is that you're going to, cut regulations, you're going to cut taxes on corporations as well as individuals, you're going to um, uh, have increased energy production without concern about climate change or other kinds of problems re regarding that. So you basically take the fetters off, uh, you're going to encourage by the bully pulpit more jobs to be here, 
uh, jobs to be located in the United States, uh, companies to repatriate profits. So it's clear yeah. that that's the idea. It's an economic nationalist uh, program. And the details we don't know yet. There's going to be. Uh, it's clear that we're going to have an increase in defense spending, and we're going to have cuts in many areas that the president will be able to cut within the bureaucracy. So I don't think you're going to see the disappearance of EPA, but you're going to definitely see um, pushes to decrease funding. And it seems like there's going to be the the pressure there. So that I think in broad outline we have the agenda. I mean, one thing I should also mention that disturbed me about the. Uh, the speech, as, uh, uh, as one observer, uh, Betsy Woodruff of the da- Daily Beast said, there was a there was sort of a continuing demonization of immigrants, but with a smile. So there wasn't really the same kind of um, blood and guts kind of demonization that we saw during the campaign. But uh, one very disturbing uh, 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 announcement was that for this new uh, group called uh, to be to be created called Voice, or the uh, Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement. And that really plays on what is factually not true. It is just factually not true that immigrants are creating are, are more responsible for violent crimes in this country than other people. In fact, mm-hmm. the opposite is true. And so that worries me a little bit that there is still this idea that you are going to get ahead and become popular by demonizing particular kinds of groups. Now, having said that, it's also true that the president began with a clear statement that he was against violence that was occurring to um, Jews, Muslims, and others. And and he six days after the attack that we saw against Indians, uh, Indian Americans, Indian uh, visa holders, uh, uh, including a death and two serious injuries that was basically a domestic terrorist attack. We waited six days, though, until we heard the president say that. And what I saw there, again, was vagueness about what are you actually going to do about it what are, what are the what are the action items now that we're going to uh, that we're going to take so um, the action items that we've seen so far are instead from the attorney general that there's going to be an assault on uh, there's going to be a pulling back of voting rights enforcement so the attorney general left a major Texas case that had been on the books for five years on um, challenging the new voting law in Texas so I think you see there's an attempt to consolidate the base and the and the and what is really not a majority a slim electoral victory with um, an attempt to I think recharge the economy make give have a lot of jobs coming in right. have economic growth going as you mentioned at the top there's been a huge boom in the stock market yep. businesses uh, are viewing this administration as business friendly and so the idea is if we can if, if the administration can ride that, that they'll have another four years uh, with uh, economic growth and job productivity which they're which their plan will attempt to accomplish. Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School, joined in studio by Eric Wirtz of the Wharton School, and uh, Jeff Green, uh, who's a professor of political theory at the University of Pennsylvania. Your comments about President Trump's speech are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone to make your comment, you're more than welcome to do so via Twitter, either at bizradio, B. BIZ Radio 111 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L O N E Y 21. One thing which you kind of alluded to, Eric, and Jeff, get your uh, thoughts on it, is that it was, again, obvious that speaking of divides, that obviously it was very easy to see. In the in that hall last night, that there is a divide between Republicans and Democrats, and seemingly it, it continues to be a rather sharp one. Uh, Any time that the comment was made by the president that was seen as positive by the Republican Party, for the most part, 
none of the Democrats got up. There were a couple of times where there was some common ground, but for the most part, that divide in Washington seemingly is still there. And that's a topic that probably a lot of Americans would like to be able to see alleviated somewhere down the down the road. Absolutely. And, you know, I like to ask uh, my liberal friends in West Philadelphia, is there a 0% chance or a more than 0% chance that Trump could be a great president? And yeah. I think a lot of people still want to hold out the possibility that, that there's at least a chance that good things will happen. And Trump did give some voice, um, however vague, to, to policies that would appeal to the opposite side of the aisle. The infrastructure program that Eric mentioned, for one thing, not making the, the proposal to privatize Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and to hold on to those programs in, in similar form as they are now. Uh, the claim that our health care is going to get better at, at lower choice, at lower cost with more choices, um, and that we're going to have um, drug prices perhaps, perhaps be regulated so they come down and insurance be regulated so it comes down, that there be paid family leave. In all of these respects, Trump, I think, did voice um, some support for policies that one might typically find uh, allegiance uh, of Democrats for. So that's one aspect of the divide that, that we could be optimistic about. But another divide that's happening, of course, is within the Republicans. The yeah. Congress is very divided right now, or it's very uncertain how, how or whether they're going to be able to legislate and, and bring forward their agenda. And it's, it's difficult. If you're a congressional Republican, you have, on the one hand, a president who is nationally very unpopular, most unpopular since the 1940s, at least, but in many Republican districts is very popular, as popular yeah. as Obama was in when he took office eight years ago. And so many, a few congressional Republicans want to, are ideologues. They want to get their agenda through. You know, maybe Cruz and Rand Paul want to get rid of Obamacare. Maybe Paul Ryan wants to privatize entitlements. But many Republicans simply want to win re-election. And yeah. they have to figure out how to uh, reconcile um, their own preferences and the preferences of their supporters at home with the president. And if the president does uh, put forward a, an agenda that is not traditionally Republican, they run the risk not of losing in the general election. I mean, the incumbency rate in Congress right now is 90 percent. Um, but they run the risk of a primary challenger. And I think the memory of Eric Cantor from 2014 yeah. is fresh in the minds of a lot of Republicans. And they know that they're at risk of being seen as too establishment and so they're in a tricky position. So it's the conflict between the Democrats and the Republicans, but there's also the an intra-party conflict right now between different branches of the Republican Party. So are, are we in kind of a, a fluctuation for both parties right now? And, and a, a lot of people have talked about the fact that uh, with uh, the election loss that the Democratic Party needs to make some changes. But also it feels like that the Republican Party understands that even though they have control of the White House and control uh, of, the, of the Congress, that they know that changes are still kind of coming as well. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's also going from the transition from being an opposition party to being a legislative party. Right. And uh, there was a good article today in the New York Times by Neil Irwin, which reminded us of the various ways when the Republicans had the presidency and the Congress under Bush Jr., they didn't uh, carry out the privatization of Social Security. They didn't support immigration reform. Yeah. They didn't even support the TARP. Bush Jr. had to support the TARP with the Democratic uh, congressman. Uh, and so um, is that going to continue? Are the Republicans going to uh, be able to uh, step out of that mentality, the pure oppositional mentality, and take some responsibility for concrete legislation? Um, that remains to be seen. But, but presumably, um, many will want to do that in the, in the weeks ahead. Eric? 
Yeah, I think uh, I, I think I agree with almost everything that Jeff said there. I think one ind- one additional um, indication of where the Democrats are thinking is the who they selected for the response talk, which is yeah. a former governor, Steve Bashir from Kentucky. Kentucky, yeah. And it was a very uh, down home, uh, basically targeted to. Uh, uh, to the, what, what you might call the lost white working class types, but I think you know there's a, some speculation about why um, why you would select that one. And one possibility is that on the healthcare issue, this is an area where probably it looks like there's going to be some compromise. Uh, Trump has promised that he's not going to take away some of the most popular features of. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise right. known as Obamacare. Some people will get that mixed up, right. apparently, according to polls. But that they're, <laughs> they're going to keep the base, some of the basics of what uh, the Affordable Care Act provides. So it looks like we're really not going to get a repeal. We're going to get some sort of a compromise. Yeah. And I think one reason they selected Kentucky is that you have uh, 500,000 people are insured there who had not been before. Uh, you have a huge number of Americans who are worried about that. The, the Republican all all representatives actually when they go home to their district are hearing about these issues. Sure, yeah. you know, lots they're hearing personal stories about people who are living today only because you had the Affordable Care Act and and had insurance so they could have get hospital care and are frightened to death that they're going to lose that. And yeah. I think again going to going to just point. We we still want to live in a democracy where the primary, uh, most interesting audience for the representative is the constituents, and so mm-hmm. when they go home and they hear uh, these kinds of stories, then I think you're gonna they're gonna be pushed toward a compromise. I would expect anyway. And it is very popular, I think, uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act on both uh, the Republicans and Democrats. It has support, and and mm-hmm. uh, legislators know this now. And you have these more aggressive critics like. Uh, Ted Cruz, like Rand Paul, who want to uh, do away with it more entirely and who are very worried about the costs. And yet that was not what was being discussed last night. Trump was talking about tax credits, and we don't know how meager they would be. But um, this is a different plan. And so maybe you're right, Eric, that, that the Republicans will go along and agree on a compromise. But one thing that was largely absent from the discussion last night was the deficit. And that is an issue that has yeah. animated yeah. a lot of um, Republicans. Um, Trump did pay brief lip service to not wanting to balloon the deficit as Obama uh, did. But now we're sitting around $20 trillion. And we know this is a major concern of, of many Republicans. And there were two prongs, I thought, to the Trump presidency as laid out recently by Steve Bannon. One was economic nationalism, as Eric has spoken to, but the other was the deconstruction of the administrative state. Mm-hmm. And the speech last night seemed to only speak to the first of those, to the economic nationalism, change trade and immigration policies, make life better for Americans at home but very little about the tough choices that would have to be made to pay for those things without ballooning the deficit. And so is Trump going to be a president who thinks like Dick Cheney that deficits don't matter? Uh, or is he going to um, speak to that part of his party that is deeply concerned about uh, deficit spending? I think that remains unknown. Yeah, I think if you do the math, as I, as I indicated before, I don't see how you get all these things that were outlined in broad terms and have uh, have any decrease in the in the in the in the in the, in the deficit. You're going to balloon the deficit. I mean, and uh, so maybe one possibility is actually uh, w- you you forget about one program that Democrats actually were ready to get behind, which is the trillion dollar announced infrastructure. So that would be an easy thing to just not do for a while uh-huh. and say, well, we can't afford it yet. Let's get all the tax cuts done and the uh, health care done and some other things and postpone that. So that'll that'll make Democrats unhappy. But if you, who cares if you're really trying to work 
the Republican divide, and I think um, I think Jeff indicated that that that, that very well. That's going to be the key: is how do you get those compromises worked out? And I think that um, uh, I think the speak uh, the speaker of the House and the majority leader have their work cut out for them on that. It's not you know it's kind of you kind of. Uh, you have to be careful what you wish for. And they wish for a Republican president, but now, it, now you can't. Now there's not Obama to blame for stuff. You can't just point at Obama and say, "Oh, healthcare is broken." Now it's your problem. Right. You have a majority in both in the Congress and the president, and so, like, oh, what are you guys going to do? And they, yeah. the problem is, they actually don't have a plan yet. So well, they, it's a, that's the uh, it, that's where the rub is. It's interesting because part of this is also the optics that that you see in the in the chamber uh, when when you do this and talking about you know trying to work with a compromise seemingly if you saw the 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 screenshots of people like nancy pelosi and and ellison and debbie wasserman schultz those didn't show that there was going to be a lot of compromise there 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 was still a lot of tension in there which is i i it's to be expected with how the first 40 days of the presidency has gone and before that you know in the run-up to the election well the other picture that was going around twitter which was pretty funny was um was uh, uh, Justice Kagan, who had a look on her face at one point of just, like, "How did I get here?" or something like that. Right. And everybody's, uh, yeah. So I think um, I think you're right about that. Well, th th then there's also something to bring up. Speaking of, of the justices, is the fact that three justices decided not to go to the speech last night. Now I don't know if if any rule, any reason was given for that. If they had commitments, but you would think that if they know that. You know, normally, I think all the justices have gone to these types of speeches before, but it is interesting that three justices did not go Well, I think Ruth, ba Ruth Bader Ginsburg has made me the best mm -hmm. argument, which is she's getting older, and I think in the previous one, there were pictures, you know, she kept nodding off. So that's a bad, <laughs> that's a bad, that's not a sign of respect, for it, but it might be just sometimes, you know, people, mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's one reason. I don't I don't know, Jeff, would you would you think of the, to read anything into the I would want to look into that absences? more. That, that struck my eye as well, but I haven't had a chance to, to, to find out more information about that. I mean, we know, we spoke earlier about ways in which the Trump agenda might possibly reach out to liberals, but we of course know in the last month or two, one of the many things that Trump has done that has offended liberals is his perceived attack on the judiciary and judicial independence and the, the bad blood that remains from the Democrats and liberals about uh, the Merrick Garland appoint appointment that is not being pursued. So um, it's something to look into for sure. I wanted to also quickly bring up, you, you mentioned about Steve Bashir giving the Democratic response to mm -hmm. that. Uh, in terms of, of, of why potentially they do it, and some articles have come out this morning saying, well, why didn't somebody like Cory Booker uh, from New right. Jersey uh, do that speech? Uh, playing off of something that, that you said, I almost get the sense that not only the fact that they have the health care component to this in the state of the state of Kentucky but also Kentucky is to a degree somewhat like some of those rust belt states which were obviously very important in the election and didn't go the way of the Democrats and and Steve Bashir uh, you know I he's he's been a governor in that state for quite some time he's now in you know as a private citizen so I think from the Democratic side they saw that as a way to be able to kind of almost kill three birds with one stone with, with that. Yeah, well, I think the best analysis so far that we had from the exit polls indicated that the real key constituent group that swung the election for Trump in the key states in the, in the so-called blue wall of Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin were uh, actually um, white middle class or working class voters who had voted for Obama both in, 2000, in both of the two previous elections. 08 and 12, And yeah. then switched. 
And so that leads a question of like, why did they switch? And there are a lot of theories. It could be that they just didn't like Hillary Clinton very much, uh, or they didn't. They wanted a change, or that they were uh, anti-women, or there could have been uh, some people said, you know, there could have been racist animus to some extent. But that doesn't make sense. If they voted for Obama twice, then why would they switch? So, I think one the best explanation that I ha- have for that is that there was a little bit of a the Democrats took their eye off the ball of the economic. Uh, issues and yep. the, and jobs issues. And <clears throat> unfortunately, it became very difficult for Clinton, especially having negotiated a trade agreement, to turn around and then go to Ohio and say, well, I'm actually against the trade agreement that I just negotiated. Yeah. And she had to switch or otherwise she would have lost the primary to Sanders because he was running that uh, running that issue very strongly. So there there is this economic nationalism, uh, I think, component to what explains Trump's election. And I think the selection of uh, Bashir to do the uh, to do the to do the, the speech is a little bit to try to come back and talk to people. I mean, he was using yeah. phrases like, you know, people who go to Sunday morning and the pews and it, these old, old school, old fashioned values. But yeah. I think there was an attempt to get back to some of the discussions about jobs, the economy, et cetera. And the Democrats, I think, have to recapture that ground as well as the demographic uh, sort of like, quote unquote, identity politics yeah. uh, advantage. Because otherwise, I think the plan is if you can run the economic nationalism successfully, so you increase, you continue to have stock market growth, you continue to have more jobs added, you continue to make people happier on that front. Yeah. And people in these states are feeling better four years from now than they than they um, have been feeling under the Obama years. Then you're going to have uh, tr- that will be a recipe for Trump to consolidate his hold. Mm-hmm. Jeff, well, Trump is at a unique moment because he's just started, um, and so all of the problems, the sh- violence in Chicago, um, the dying um, manufacturing industries in America, uh, the sense of um, you know threat abroad are all not from him. He can put present these problems yeah. as external to him, and that he's here to to solve, and he's making great promises, big promises, that he said the dying industries will come back, that everyone can expect to have a safe neighborhood, a great school, and a high-paying job, not just a job, but a high-paying job. This appealing to the stock market in his opening um, months in office is, you know, something that he can do because the stock market has not really gone down uh, since he's been in office, but presumably that will happen someday. Yeah. And he even promised uh, the the um, ending of the drug epidemic, which is quite a tall order. So uh, maybe one of the ways the Democrats get back into things is just with the passage of time. And as Trump has to own uh, some of the problems that will almost certainly still be with us, unfortunately, a year from now or two years from now, it will be less credible for Trump to present himself as the solver of all problems. Or if he does somehow do it, then, you know, he'll he'll deserve widespread support. And that's why the the potential of the midterm elections in 2018 because becomes very important because of that kind of agenda and wanting to do so many things and the time frame to be able to kind of put it all together. Yes. Exactly. Great to have you both with us. Thank you both. Thank all you, the Dan. best. Thank Thanks, you. Jeff, Jeff Green, uh, professor of political theory here at the University of Pennsylvania. Eric Ortz of the Wharton School, professor of legal studies and business ethics. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.